So the spiritual forces of evil and the dark powers of this world, they are waging a disinformation warfare campaign against you, against your family, against your kids. And their power is most effective when you don't notice it, when you don't notice them at work. And they can take you captive through their deceptive philosophy. Deception is his primary weapon. He is, as Pastor Josh has mentioned in the prior two weeks, he is the father of lies and the truth is not in him at all. He is the father of lies and the truth is not in him at all. So there is a battle that is raging on around us right now between truth and lies. We see it, we see it happening. We see, we see all of this disinformation as it pertains to like, like you know, the p- political narrative of our, of our country. We see it all around human sexuality right now, which is a massive growing issue where, where people in the church uh, know Jesus, they've been touched by Jesus, but the way in which they see the world is still pretty blurred because there are things about specifically human sexuality that like looks good, sounds good, sounds true, but, but it, it doesn't fly when you, when you filter it through the gospel of Jesus. It's not good news. It's not good news at all. And, and, and there's many other social issues going on right now where those in the church, like, like they, they, they're, they're very um, um, affectionate towards Jesus, towards his free gift of salvation. Uh, they, they want eternity in heaven and all of that. But there is this war that is raging between truth and lies where they find themselves being led away, being deceived to believe something as truth. And it's not true at all. It's actually incredibly destructive to their own soul. We are in week three of a teaching series uh, called The Three Enemies of the Soul, uh, which we have defined as the devil, the flesh, and the world. Now, what we're going to be talking about this morning, I believe, is really, really important. So important, in fact, that I want you to consider that what we're going to talk about today uh, might actually be a game changer for you. Um, Not just in terms of your faith, but in terms of how you see the world. See, I believe that uh, you can... You can come to church, you can put yourself even around good biblical teaching, uh, and uh, man, you could even identify with Jesus, and, and yet you could, you could still struggle uh, to see the world uh, the right way. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever, ever felt that way, but, but like, you know, it can be confusing for us when we look at what's going on in the dominant culture, what the, 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 the issues of the day are. It can be difficult for us to discern what's really going on. Uh, even though we love Jesus, we can kind of fo- find ourselves kind of, kind of just going along, um, struggling to understand, um, you know, the cultural moment that we live in. So in Mark's gospel, you know, Jesus, Jesus does this healing, and uh, he does this healing when a blind man comes to him, and it's a, it's a, a really strange healing. Uh, Jesus does something that that uh, is incredibly. Uh, strange, right? He takes his own saliva, he mixes it with some dirt, creates some mud, and then places this mud on the eyeballs of the blind man, right? And so uh, the story goes like this in Mark chapter 8, verse 23. It says, when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. And so in this, in this story, in this in, encounter this blind man has with Jesus, um, what's interesting to me is that initially Jesus only does a partial healing. He only, he only like partially 
fixes this man's sight. Like he's been touched by Jesus. He's encountered the God of the universe, but he's still yet to see uh, clearly. He says, I can see, but I see people, and it's blurry. I see people, uh, and they look like trees walking around. I think this is a really powerful picture for us in this series, especially in terms of like talking about these enemies of our soul, because I believe, uh, if you're taking notes this morning, I believe that some of us have been touched by Jesus, but the way we're looking at the world is still blurred. Like we've been touched by Jesus for sure, but the way we see the world, it's still a bit, a bit confusing, you know? Um, it's still unclear. It's like we're wearing our glasses or we have like, but, but, but we have the wrong prescription. Have you ever, you ever tried to put on somebody else's glasses and you're just like, it just can't see quite right. It's like, it's like you've been touched by Jesus, you've gone to church, you know, all these things, been around good biblical teaching, but when you look out at the world, it all just seems a little bit off kilter. You're just, it, it's very difficult at times to like de- decipher what truth really is and why, why is this the case? You know, like, like I think we got to ask ourselves that question. If you've ever felt that tension, we have to ask, like, why is this the case? I, I would tell you, I think it's a pretty simple answer. I, I think it's because there, we have a real enemy, and his name is the devil. And he has made things blurry in our world. He has uh, made things confusing so that the truth isn't very easy to find, and it's not very easy to determine. And so you look out at what's going on around us, whether it's like big social issues, you know, that are in in the headlines or it's political issues going on or whatever the case, you know, um, issues in in your life and in family. And it can be very difficult to to not just find the truth, but then to determine what truth actually is. And so the story goes on here in in Mark chapter 8, verse 25, and it says, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now this is the picture of what I've been praying for this week. This is, this is what I've, I've been praying that God would do for us. I, I believe that Jesus wants to touch our vision. He wants to touch our eyes, our spiritual eyes, that we'll be able to, to, to be people who see things clearly and understand what's really going on. I think the prayer this morning is that Jesus would bring into focus the things that really matter for us as followers of Jesus. You know, there's a lot of things that matter when it comes to following Jesus, but when it comes to understanding our enemy, there's really a couple things that matter most. One, you have to be able to understand or recognize the the schemes of the devil, right? You have to be able to recognize, like, the schemes of the devil, and then two, you have to be able to take a stand against those schemes. So this week and next, that's really what we're going to be talking about, how to recognize the schemes of the devil and then how to take a stand against those, th- those things. So we want God to touch our vision, amen? We want, we want God to, to give us clarity so that when we're, we, we are looking out, we have great discernment on like, you know, what is God and what is not. We have great discernment on what is happening around us in the world and what is happening in our own souls. You know, for almost 2,000 years, um, apprentices of Jesus have held this belief that the three enemies of the soul are the devil, the flesh, and the world. But in recent times, in recent years, when it comes to you know, the challenges that our souls are facing on a daily basis, all three of those ancient enemies have like, fallen out of the conversation, especially the ancient enemy that we call the devil. And you have to ask why this is the case. I, I would say, I, I think it's primarily because those of us who live in the West have become too smart for our own good, or, or so we think, right? 
I think we're all aware that within Western culture, it has, we have seen a, a sharp decline in the value for spirituality over the last 50 years, you know? I think in, in recent years, you know, it has been viewed as unscientific or wishful thinking to hold a spiritual belief that informs how you live your life. And so Christianity especially, but really I would say all spirituality in general has been moved uh, out of the mainstream and pushed into the fringes as something that's good for you, but not necessarily good for us as a society, right? You've probably felt this, probably witnessed this, you've seen this. And so questions around, you know, the meaning of life, thoughts around that, you know, questions about morality, questions about what it really means to be human are questions that are being answered differently now than they once were. And so the answers to these questions that were once held by the majority are now answers that are only being held by the minority. We have become what Peter Berger once coined a, a uh, cognitive minority. A cognitive minority, if you're taking notes. A cognitive minority is a group of people whose view of the world differs significantly from the one generally taken for granted in their society. Okay, so in a post-Christian context, which is what we live in, what was once, you know, what the views that we hold now and, and that are very much in the minority were once views that were held by the majority. We understand that? Like that's how things have shifted from a, from a, 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 a sort of a Christian culture to a post-Christian society. I think we understand this all, at, 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 you know, on some level, right? This idea of being in the cognitive Minority. I think we understand that to be a Christian means in some sense that we're going to look at the world differently than most. Like, and that's not something that is new. That's something that has been taught for 2,000 years, that we tend to look at the world differently than, than most or those who, who are in you know, the, the, the majority. And so um, the problem with this now is that this differing worldview that is held by followers of Jesus is not held with high respect within the larger culture. And so... And so when you believe in a real devil who is wreaking havoc on this world, it seems to those in the majority like something uh, that, that would be um, similar to like a fairy tale or an unintelligent explanation for why the world is the way it is, okay? And so if you choose to actually believe this, you know, like a real devil, not a myth, you know, not a, uh, not a figment of our overactive imaginations or... Uh, you know, uh, a superstitious hangover from a pre-scientific age, like if you choose to believe this stuff, then you are in the cognitive minority, right? You, you have a belief uh, that informs how you live your life that is not held by the majority of people within the dominant culture. Are, are, are you tracking with me this morning? Okay, okay. The reason why this matters and the reason why you have to understand kind of where you sit as it pertains to like, you know, uh, your beliefs and, and all of that is because, is because if, if, we don't, if we don't get this figured out, like really all the things we're teaching in this series don't matter and really how we live our lives uh, is affected significantly by, uh, by these beliefs. Look at this, this thought with me. I would tell you that essential to our survival is an understanding that the devil is real. Like essential to our survival as followers of Jesus is an understanding that the devil is real. Why? Well, do you think that it's pretty important to actually know who your enemy is? You think it might be important to know, like, fundamentally that you even have an enemy, right? Like, it's, it's, it's pretty important. So, so I, mean, I mean, really for this teaching to take hold in, in your life, like, I, I want you to, like, open yourself up to 
this, this idea that like the devil is real. He is real. Jesus believed this. The writers of the New Testament believed this. This is nothing new. In fact, I'm going to give you a, a very famous passage, classic passage in Ephesians 6 on spiritual warfare. I want us to look at that here, here to, together. It's a passage that many of you are going to be familiar with. It's um, Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to go 10 through 12, and it's written by the Apostle Paul. And he says this, he says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Okay, so Paul is writing this text to the church in Ephesus. Now, this is a church that we talked about quite a bit this past summer, if you were here with us for, this, uh, for our teaching series, uh, the, the Good Fight, right? Um, and so I want to bring Ephesus back into focus for, for just a, a moment here. This is a place, a city with a very large multicultural, multi-ethnic environment. It's a strong political, military, and economic power of Rome. Uh, there's all sorts of different beliefs swirling around in this highly influential city. We talked over the summer, if you remember, about the Temple of Artemis being, being like the, the, this, this, this pagan um, you know, religion held by the vast majority in Ephesus. There's uh, various, you know, Egyptian religions that, 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 are, that are there. There's um, still Hellenistic Judaism that's present in this city. And so Paul is writing to these Christians in Ephesus, and he's speaking to this environment that they're living in to make it clear, uh, if, if you're taking notes this morning, that the life of faith is one in which there is a real struggle with a real enemy and a stand must be taken. That's what Paul's saying here. That there is a, there's a real struggle that we face with a real enemy, and a stand must be taken. And he tells us to take our stand against the devil's schemes. He tells us to put on the full armor of God. Well, what do you need, the, what do you need armor for? You know? Like, like, what good is armor? Like, why do you need any armor if there is no enemy, if there is no threat? And he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He goes on in verse 12, the first part of verse 12, and Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is a really important scripture, because if you don't read this far down, and all you read is the first two verses I gave, like, you can be like, all right, I'll take my stand against the devil's schemes, and we can start to, to assume what we think the devil's schemes are. We can start to to just uh, look at people we don't like. We can start to look at people who are different than us or whatever it is and start to assume that that's the devil's schemes. But Paul writes very clearly here and he says, you gotta understand that the struggle that you feel, the struggle that you're facing as it comes, uh, pertains to being a follower of Jesus is not against flesh and blood. I think that it's possible that we might actually be so, f so familiar with this verse that we actually miss out on how prophetic it is. This is such a, this is such a prophetic verse. It was prophetic then, and it's prophetic right now. I would tell you that in a world that is quickly returning to tribalism, right, this group versus that group, these people are in, these people are out, someone needs to be blamed, someone needs to be innocent, someone needs to be victimized, which looks across at all of these differing ideas, and instead of seeing ideas, it sees human faces to blame where instantly we know who our enemies are, the people who are different than us. And I think you, you all understand that this is happening all across our world right now. Like, right? It's happening all across our city. It's happening all across our country. 
And Paul makes it very clear here in Ephesians 6.12 that our enemies are not human beings. It's not flesh and blood. Look at this thought with me on the screen. Flesh and blood is easy to blame because it's easy to see. It's something you can reach out and touch. The problem with this is that the scriptures tell us that there is a different dimension at work that is the actual cause of our struggles, okay? That's what the scriptures teach. This isn't some like hokey, wonky teaching on like some weird, you know, spiritual stuff. Like this is what the scriptures teach, okay? That our struggles are not against flesh and blood. It's not against family members. It's not against coworkers. It's not against people in your own like immediate nuclear family. It's not, it's not who your struggle is against. That there is an, another dimension at work that is the actual cause of our struggles. So Paul here in, in Ephesians 6, what he's basically doing is he's acknowledging the fact that there's, there's multiple dimensions. He's acknowledging that there is this foreground that we are more, most naturally aware of. The, the foreground is, is really the human ground. It's where, like, it's where we exist. It's the physical. The foreground is what allows you to see people in this room right now. Okay? This is the foreground. There are sociological human dynamics occurring in this room right now. I think we all understand that, that we see that, we get that. Our world is all about that, the physical, the external, the evident, the material, the foreground, okay? Paul, Paul's acknowledging that, but, but what he's suggesting in this verse, in, in Ephesians 6.12, is he's suggesting that the foreground, what we see with our eyes, is not the whole story. That's, that's what he's acknowledging here, right? That, th- that there, there are things at work, there are forces at work, there's realities at work that, are, that do not exist in the foreground. And I would say that as Christians, we should get this pretty easily. Even though it's, it's a little strange, like we should understand this dynamic pretty easily because central to our entire belief system is this faith that there is a whole lot of background activity that pertains to God. Like we believe this. We believe that there is a God operating in the background who makes the whole world and then comes into the world, comes into the foreground by sending his son. Like, this is, this is what we believe. As Christians, we believe that God has a kingdom that we long to see come from the background into the foreground. This is why we pray those famous words, right, on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's why we pray that way. We, want, we believe that there is something else going on in another place that, that, is, that is truth, that is right, that is actual reality. And we, we long for the reality of heaven to invade earth, right? That's what we pray. That's how we pray. So we believe that there, like, like, like this is what we believe and understand, that there is a foreground that we are living in and operating in that we see in the physical and the natural. And there's a whole lot going on in the background that we want to see come from the background and, and affect the foreground. Are you with me? So as Christians, we have some level of familiarity with these two things, the background and the foreground. But where Paul really is going in this scripture um, is interesting because where he goes next, he talks about another dimension, really. One that we are naturally going to be less familiar with and less aware of, and we're just going to call it, if you're taking notes, the middle ground. We're going to call it the middle ground. And this is a dimension that is essential to understanding what is actually going on in our lives and what is going on in our world. So you have humans, us, living and operating in the foreground. You have God in the background. But in the middle ground, there is a dimension, right, where 
where the enemy and his demonic forces are at work. And the reason why there's this other dimension is because we fully understand that like the devil and his minions, they do not exist in heaven, right? They don't exist in the background like that. They exist in another dimension. It's the middle ground. Like they are present forces here on earth, but we don't see them with our eyes. It's an unseen reality. The middle ground is full of non-traditional warfare where anything goes. It's a type of guerrilla warfare where the struggle is very real. And so what, what I want to get at here is that, is that if, if our struggle is not against flesh and blood, then who or what is our struggle against? Okay? Well, let's look at this uh, in, in the second part of Ephesians 6.12. So it is in the middle ground, okay, that Paul basically says this. He says, he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's, that's who the struggle is against, right there. Okay, so, so that's what's going on. So the devil is real, and there are spiritual forces of evil at work in this world that we cannot always see with our eyes. Okay, that's what's going on. We, we know that the devil originally was an angel. He, he existed in heaven with God, right? He, he uh, had the name Lucifer in heaven, but, uh, but that he, he, he sought to be like God, sought to have his own control, and, and he convinced a third of the, of the, of the angels of heaven to, to side with him. Jesus talks about this in the Gospels where he says, those famous words, he says, I saw the devil fall like lightning from heaven. Like he saw it happen. He, he, he knows what happened, right? That, that, that the devil who was once uh, on team God uh, left, that, left that team uh, and is wreaking havoc on this world that God created. So, Paul tells us that our struggle is against the dark powers of this world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. But, Paul also tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that these powers have already been defeated. Look at Colossians 2.15 with me for a second. Paul writes and says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, okay, those are important words, powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Triumphing over them by the cross. And so within a biblical theology of spiritual warfare, the devil has already been defeated by Jesus on the cross. Like that's, that's what we fully believe, okay? He's already been defeated. Our spiritual ancestors called this Christus Victor. You familiar with that term? Or no, Christ is victorious. Um, and many of them actually saw the devil's defeat as the primary implication of the cross and the resurrection. This is why that famous scripture in 1 John 3, 8, where the apostle John writes and says, the reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil or to destroy the devil's works. Like, that's why Jesus came, like, on his mission in the flesh. Like, like yes, salvation for you and me is a pretty big deal and a part of that. Yes, eternity with God is part of his mission, but, but really, the reason Jesus came was to destroy the devil's works, was to destroy the devil's works. So, there is a real enemy, there is a real battle, but the good news is that the devil has been defeated at the cross, right? We believe this. This is good news. And Jesus has come to destroy those works. I want to give you this thought with, um, this morning as we start to shift into where we're headed next. If you're taking notes. When we think about war, 
we often will have a picture in our minds of an evenly matched battle between two equally matched enemies. But this is not how it is with spiritual war. To be clear, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil are not a match against God. They have already been disarmed and made a public spectacle of. The only type of warfare they can engage in now is a disinformation campaign. A disinformation campaign. And that's what I want to talk about the rest of the way. I want to, I want to, I want to talk about how to really recognize uh, and, 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 and be able to see and pick out the schemes of the devil. And primarily the way he works is through a disinformation campaign. Since 1989, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the United States has been the only global superpower in the world. It's what is called a unipolar world. It's quickly becoming a bipolar world with the rise of China in the East. But in this type of global dynamic, where there is one global superpower, or even just two global superpowers, many other countries have had to create other concepts of war. Most common is what is called asymmetrical warfare, or another term for that is dirty war. Maybe you're familiar with that. Asymmetrical warfare is where you don't go straight towards your enemy. You don't meet your enemy on the battlefield. You instead use irregular troops. You mastermind an insurrection in other countries. You get various minorities in that country to rebel. You flood with disinformation. Right? That's what happens all over the place. Dirty war is where you hack networks and you take over media for the purpose of inserting false narratives in that country. So dirty war is not the meeting of tanks on a battlefield, but it is the shaping of minds toward a specific end. War in 140 Characters is a book uh, written by David uh, Pat Patrick uh, Caracas, and it's written on the effect that Twitter has had on war. He makes the claim, if you're taking notes this morning, that war um, is no longer what we thought it was. It's no longer about taking a territory, but about controlling a narrative. It's about controlling a narrative. And so when it comes to the war that we find ourselves in, the spiritual war, I would tell you this morning that I don't think it's much different. Because if the enemy has already been defeated, right, at the cross, right, if, if he's already been disarmed, then, then his purpose of fighting isn't to take back territory, right? It's to control a narrative. And so um, look, look at this with me on the screen. The dark powers of this world and the spiritual forces of evil are not fighting a battle for territory because they've already been defeated on the cross. Rather, they're fighting a battle for control of the narrative. It's become a war between truth and lies. It's become a war between truth and lies. So, so the spiritual forces of evil and the dark powers of this world, they are waging a disinformation warfare campaign against you, against your family, against your kids, and their power is most effective when you don't notice it, when you don't notice them at work. And they can take you captive through their deceptive philosophy. Paul writes, against, uh, writes about this in Colossians 2, just a little bit earlier um, in, in chapter 2, before he gets to the part about the, the, the powers and the authorities being disarmed. He writes this in Colossians 2.8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and, ba and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. 
Some of y'all need to take a second and just read that a couple times. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on, what is it? It's human tradition and the basic principles of this world. Where does this world get its principles? Where does this world get its philosophy? Right? From the prince of the earth rather than on Christ. So I would tell you that the primary warfare of the devil is the use of hollow and deceptive philosophies. Deception is his primary weapon. He is, as Pastor Josh has mentioned in the prior two weeks, he is the father of lies, and the truth is not in him at all. He is the father of lies, and the truth is not in him at all. So there is a battle that is raging on around us right now between truth and lies, and it seems oftentimes to me like truth is losing. Do you feel that? You feel the tension within? It feels like, like truth is losing. So maybe you can see this battle between truth and lies going on. We see it. We see it happening. We see, we see all of this disinformation as it pertains to like, like you know, the p- political narrative of our, of our country. We see it all around human sexuality right now, which is a massive growing issue where, where people in the church uh, know Jesus. They've been touched by Jesus, but the way in which they see the world is still pretty blurred. Because there are things about specifically human sexuality that like looks good, sounds good, sounds true, but, but it, it doesn't fly when you, when you filter it through the gospel of Jesus. It's not good news. It's not good news at all. And, and, and there's many other social issues going on right now where those in the church, like, like they, they're, they're, they're very um, um, affectionate towards Jesus, towards his free gift of salvation. Uh, they, they want eternity in heaven and all of that, but there is this war that is raging between truth and lies where they find themselves being led away, being deceived to believe something as truth, and it's not true at all. It's actually incredibly destructive to their own soul. Disinformation, if you're taking notes, disinformation, or in the language of Scripture, deception, is at the root of almost every single problem we face in our society and in our souls. You believe that? In light of our cultural moment, it seems to me, <laughs> seems to me that Jesus' teachings on the devil and lies are, are more plausible, insightful, and compelling than maybe ever before. Right? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I don't, you know, if I think about, like, the years I have followed Jesus, um, you know, scriptures on the devil aren't necessarily the scriptures that I have like on my refrigerator or ones that I like memorize or, you know, ones that just make me feel closer to God, you know, like, like but, <laughs> but it sure seems based on like what is happening around us. If you have eyes to see and, and, and maybe you don't fully understand, but, but there's something inside of you that just knows things are off, things are off kilter in, in culture and in, in, in your own life and at home. Like, like I think the teachings on the devil from Jesus are are maybe more insightful right now than ever before. Jesus and the apostles warn us over and over again of the dangers of lies, deceptions, false doctrines, false teachers who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And in one of Jesus' last teachings, he warns his apprentices about how easy, easily it is to become deceived. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 13, I want to give you all of these These are Jesus' words, okay? It says, Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. 
Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. That's the good news, guys. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Will be saved. So there's two things we got to know when it comes to our enemy, the devil. We got to know how to recognize his schemes. And then we have to understand how to take a stand against those schemes. And scriptures like this, they're not meant to like put fear in you, but they're meant to like wake you up. They're meant to wake us all up to the reality that because of the increase of wickedness, of which we are seeing like maybe never before, like rampant wickedness, Jesus says the love of most will grow cold. Talking about the love that people have for him, followers of Jesus, the love of most will go cold. But he who stands firm, right, who doesn't waver, who hangs on to truth, who follows Jesus no matter what, no matter if it's popular or not, that person who stands firm to the end will be saved. So this is Jesus. The writers of the New Testament follow up Jesus' warning with over 40 more warnings of deception. Here, I'll just give you a few examples. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 9, he says, Don't be deceived. <laughs> okay? Colossians 2.4, he says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. In other words, it's going to sound true, it's going to sound good, but I tell you this so that you don't get deceived by things that sound true but actually aren't. 2 Corinthians 11.13, Paul writes again and he says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your, disseer, from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So, look at this thought. For Jesus and the early teachers of his way, deception was a major issue. You got to agree with that at least, right? Whether you believe it or not, you have to agree that to Jesus and, his, and the early writers of the New Testament, to them, deception was a major issue. It was a major thing to confront. It was a major thing to be aware of. It was a major thing to, like, to, to navigate life around, it was something to, like, to, to, to have like present as, a, as like, a, um, like a real threat. They clearly understood that there was a real enemy. And deception, disinformation, was his primary weapon. And yet, don't you think like, it, it sure seems like we rarely hear warnings like this today? Don't you think that? It's true? Like we rarely hear warnings like this today. Rarely, I think even more, like rarely do we ever stop to consider if we are actively being deceived in any way. Right? Like rarely ever do we stop and go, man, is, is it possible that there is something that I have believed? That there is something, there's something I've given myself to that is actually not real, not true, not, not good for my soul? Rarely do we ever stop and do like an inventory of our soul and our belief system to really find out whether or not we've believed something that has the power to kill us. Like, like John 10.10, 10, which Pastor Josh mentioned last week, like John 10.10 10 is, is, is a famous verse. 
where Jesus says the thief or the enemy comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and life to the fullest. So there are two realities to that scripture. One, where we have a very real enemy who has a mission to steal, kill, and destroy. And then we have Jesus who has a mission to bring life, life to the fullest. And so the problem is sometimes we, we struggle to understand the difference between truth and lies. And when we give ourselves into lies or over to deception, we find ourselves embracing things that do not bring life, that do not bring life to the full. Rarely do we ever stop to consider if we're, we're being actively deceived in any way. So, what have we learned so far? We have learned that the devil is a liar, right? My kids love that song by uh, Colton Dixon. If you don't know it, just start uh, humming that on the way home, start singing to that. It's, it's pretty great. Uh, it goes really well with our series. Uh, if, you like, if you like sort of like pop, Christian pop, right? Yeah, music. John Mark Comer says it like this, if you're taking notes. He says, the devil is a liar. He's a really good liar. The devil is a master manipulator. He's far more intelligent than we give him credit for. You can bet that if we know what makes for a good lie, an oxymoron if there ever was one, so does he. If we know what makes for a good lie, so does he. You ever, you ever just like, you ever just said something like, uh, or admitted that, that you're, like, you're a pretty good liar? You're, I mean, like, on, like sort of like in, in humor, but like, how many of y'all know how to lie? I mean, you don't have to, I, mean, I guess you appreciate the honesty back there. How many of y'all, y'all are, like, just know how to lie? Like, you're, like, you're good at it, you know? But what, what, <laughs> what he's getting at here in this quote is he's saying, look, like, remember who the father of lies is? Like, it's not you. You didn't invent deception. Like, it comes from your spiritual enemy who wants to kill you. And if you know what a good lie is, how much more do you think he does? How much more do you think he does? And so what we know is that the, that the devil for 2,000 years, and, or longer, really, I mean, since, since, since the garden, right? The, the devil has been actively deceiving people. And so how does he do this? How does he deceive us over and over and over again, a couple ways, if you're taking notes this morning, he knows that the most effective lies are the ones that are mostly true. He knows that, and so do you. And that's why when you choose to lie, you, tip, you typically lie this way. The second, the second way the devil deceives us is, is this. The next most effective lies are those that are true, but not the whole truth. Right? It's, it's the withholding of, of some detail. That's still lying, right? That's something that is apparent. You, got to get into your kids, right? Like, I wanted the whole truth. I didn't just want 75% of the story, right? Like, because you withheld, that's still lying. I didn't have the whole story, right? So, yeah, you can look at your kids right now. Give them a little elbow if you'd like. Um, kids, you can do that back to your parents, too. Uh, we all do this. We all do this. So, the tension, though, here is that we know how the devil deceives us, but I think the question we have, to, we have to ask also is, if we know how he works and we know how he deceives, then why do we fall so easily for these lies? Like if we know he is all about deception and we know that he, he is constantly spinning something to try to wreak havoc on our lives and into our families, why do we fall so easily for these lies? 
And I would tell you that the reason why the devil's disinformation campaign is so wildly successful, even when faced with counterfacts of reality, is that it plays to what the New Testament writers call our flesh. These, these lies play to our flesh. And we're going to get into that here in a, uh, a couple weeks. One of the other enemies of our soul, the flesh. But, but the, the reality here is like, the, man, the devil's lies, they aren't just random untrue facts with no emotional value. Right? He's not like lying to you trying to tell you that like, man, Elvis is still alive. Like, you know, like that's not the way it works. Like, like that has no emotional bearing on your soul at all, you know? He's not, he's not like, 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 what kind of good is a lie like that? You're like, okay, fine, like, whatever, I don't believe you. But what about when he starts to tell you that you deserve to be happy? What about when he tells you that you haven't been happy in a long time? You work hard, you know? You deserve to let off a little steam. You deserve to do whatever it is that makes you happy. It is an appeal to our flesh. It is an appeal to our desires, and we often become deceived because there's a, um, a real emotion attached to this lie. You deserve, you deserve to be happy, and you work really hard. You haven't been happy in a long time. Pursue your happiness. Do whatever it is that makes you happy. Look at this thought with me this morning. Nobody sins out of duty or discipline. We sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. That's why we sin. We believe a lie about what will make us happy. Doing, you know, doing what I do, I, I've, you know, I've been able to be kind of in the, the front row of watching sin destroy people's lives. I've been there, I've been in the homes, I've been in counseling, I've been in the moments, right? And it's all because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. Sam, I'm gonna have you come on up. Genesis chapter three tells a story It's a story about Eve talking to a serpent. And the serpent, he is the personification of the devil in Genesis chapter 3. And he comes to Eve while she is deeply enjoying her life in this new creation in the garden. And the first descriptor of the serpent in Genesis 3 is that he's crafty. Look at this, Genesis 3, 1, verse, uh, uh, 1a. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. Crafty, cunning, tricks, tricksy. <laughs> we'll go with that. When you read Genesis 3, you find that his first lie, it was a subtle, it was a subtle lie. It was posed as a question to Eve. So the second half of, of 3.1, this, this, this is what the serpent, remember the personification of the devil, this is, this is what he, he, he says to Eve. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did, did God really say that? 
Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Okay, so did God really say you can't eat from any tree? No, 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 that's, that's not what God said. God said you can eat from all trees in the garden except for one. The devil, he comes to Eve and he, try, he, he gets in with this subtle little, little twisting of the truth to try to get her to, to just sort of question like the goodness of God and, and how benevolent God is to her as a father in this garden. Like all that he has given her, he's trying to get her to question whether God has really, really given her uh, the best. And he says in verse four, he says, you will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You notice that the serpent comes to Eve with a simple yet vivid idea. He plants an idea in her mind, an idea that is more dangerous than any weapon he could have used to fight against her, actually, right? It's a war of lies. He's not trying, he's not, this isn't, this isn't about like, traditional warfare. It's a war between truth and lies. And the idea here in the garden, the idea in this lot that goes back to the garden is that God is holding out on you. If you seize autonomy from God and do your own thing with me, you're going to be better off. God's holding out on you. You're not going to die. God didn't really say that you, you can't eat from, from you know, any tree. God didn't really say that. And it's this, it's, this, it's this appeal to like personal autonomy, to seize back control, to do your own thing with the devil and that somehow you'll be better off. This is the lie underneath all other lies, everybody. This is the lie underneath all other lies. This deception is and has always been twofold, to seize autonomy from God, and to redefine good and evil based on the voice in our heads and the inclination of our hearts rather than trusting the loving word of God. Let's frame it another way. Let's frame it another way. There are three great questions in life. I think we have these on the screen. Maybe. There are three great, great questions. No, you can go back for a second. Three great questions in life. The questions are who is God or the gods or is there a God or God? So, so three great questions. Who is God? Who are we? And how do we live? Who is God? Who are we? And how do we live? Put it another way. These questions could be said this way. What is the meaning and purpose of life? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? These three questions are the driving force behind all religion philosophy, education, art, and literature, they are the core questions of humanity from the beginning. So here's how it looks. We're, we're trying to answer these questions. Like, like, be honest with yourself this morning. Like, have you ever found yourself trying to answer these questions? Like, who is God? Who are we? And how do we live? And so here's what it looks like. If you, you can show this next slide. We ask this question, who is God? What is he like and can I trust him? And the devil lies 
he's an unloving, jealous tyrant who's holding out on you. You can't trust him. That's how the devil works. Next one, we ask, who are we? What does it mean to be human? The devil lies. You, you can transgress your limitations and become whoever and whatever you want. Identity is self-defined. Morality is self-determined. Take control of your own life. You will be like God. The next one we ask, how do we live? What is the good life? How do I live it? How do I live the good life? The devil lies and he says, you can't trust God, but you can trust yourself. Your own wisdom and desires. Follow your heart. Your inner desires are the most accurate map to the happy life you crave. Lies. Lies straight from the pit of hell, and yet these are the common thoughts in the dominant culture that we live in right now. Whatever, whatever it is that makes you happy, pursue your inner desires. It's the most accurate map to happiness, the life you crave. Follow that voice inside. You know, do, do whatever your flesh desires. Identity is self-defined. Morality is self-determined. It's lies from the enemy. And his lies are always meant to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Look at this thought this morning. The lies of the devil always run along these lines. Distance yourself from God. Do your own thing. Redefine good and evil based on your own gut and desire. That right there. That's how it works. And so this, this, is, this is how you, how you start to recognize the schemes of the devil in culture. And this is how you begin to recognize the schemes of the devil in your own life and in your own family. And when it comes to your children and the environments that they're in and all of that stuff, this, this is how you start to recognize the schemes of the devil. This doesn't lead to the good life. This leads to complete anarchy, which is what we see everywhere. Complete and total anarchy. It's a disinformation campaign and it's meant to destroy your life. Meant to destroy your life. So a couple questions I have for you to consider as we close. How should our faith in God and our ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit influence our ability to recognize the enemy's lies? How should that work? Our faith in God and our ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit, how is that supposed to influence our ability to recognize the enemy's lies. Like the Holy Spirit is within you. You are not powerless against this force, this enemy. You're not powerless. The Holy Spirit is within you. You're meant to like, have, have deep and personal and intimate relationship with the Father through the Spirit. And, and in doing so, it allows you to discern the schemes of the devil so that you can distance yourself from that. And then I would just ask you today, what are some changes you can make to live in truth rather than lies. Would you stand with me this morning? Would you bow your heads just for a moment here? Holy Spirit, we just invite you. 
pray that you'd settle in this room right now. Pray you'd come in here right now and you'd do whatever you want to do. Would you bring things to the surface? Would you jog our memories? Would you show us things you want to cleanse, things you want to clear? Would you show us the areas where you want to replace lies with your overwhelming truth? If you're here this morning and you would just say, hey, Pastor Jordan, you know, like, there's absolutely some stuff going on. Or you, you would say you have, you have been, like, baited. You have been uh, tricked. Or the enemy has deceived you in some ways. Or you find yourself just embracing some things that are not giving life to you. And you need some, on, you need some honest freedom. You need some forgiveness. You need the Holy Spirit to set you free. You need truth to come and replace the lies lies about yourself lies lies that you've been listening to that you inter, inter, you know uh, that you entertain lies that are actually like taking you down a path you don't want to go on and you want Jesus to come and just set you free from these lies you want him to place his loving hands over your ears to protect you're hearing from things you shouldn't hear and things you shouldn't pay attention to. Can I just see your hand this morning? There's been a voice that you know is not the voice of God that has been influencing you for far too long. And it's, fine, it's time right now to tell that voice where to go and to tell that enemy where he belongs. And so God, I ask now in this room for every person with their hand raised under the sound of my voice, that Holy Spirit, you would come, that you would, you would begin to remove every lie that has been entertained, every lie that has been believed. We recognize that there is a real enemy and that he is a liar, that he is a punk, that he, he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would begin to speak through your spirit right now. You begin to highlight, you begin to, to, to make us aware of every lie that has been hijacking our life and causing us to, to live uh, a life far different than the abundant life you came to bring. And I pray, Lord, that you'd start to replace every single one of those lies with your truth. Speak truth over your kids right now in this room. Speak truth over every person that's been held captive by deceptive and hollow philosophy. Speak truth in this place, oh God. Set us free in this room. I thank you that you're good. And now, God, we come before you together, all of us in this place, to maybe ask a question we've rarely, if ever, asked. And it's, it's just simply this, God, is it possible that there's some things that I have believed that are actually not true? Is it possible that there's some things I have believed that have not been useful for my life 
and that I've not been helpful to my relationship with you. And I ask God that you would be so faithful to start to rise those things to the surface in us, that we could see those, we could recognize where the enemy has been at work to try to steal, kill, and to destroy. May you help show us where the enemy has been at work, even in our own kids and in their lives and trying to destroy them at a young age. And Lord, I pray life over every person under the sound of my voice right now, that they would have the resolve, the ability to stand up against the schemes of the devil, to not fall victim, to not fall prey, to not just go along with what sounds normal or seems normal, but to have your, you know, that, that supernatural protection over our ears and over our minds. I pray for a renewing of our minds and our thinking here today where truth would come and confront the lies of the enemy and set us free to walk differently than maybe ever before, oh God. In Jesus' holy name we pray.